listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. So we named this series Advent Stories as we look through the stories in the Gospel of Luke of how people received Jesus when he came his first time, and it teaches us how to expect his second coming. But we use the word Advent all the time, but we don't always explain what it means. So look with me at this definition. Advent is the Christian celebration starting after Thanksgiving of Jesus's first coming and the expectation of Jesus's second coming. And Jesus's first coming was something called the incarnation, where Jesus took incarnate, took on flesh, became a man, added a humanity to his divinity as God by being born as a baby. And his second coming is something called the parousia, which is a fancy word, but it's Greek for the coming, the arrival, an official visit. In the Perusia, the second coming of Jesus is his future return, not as a baby to a cradle, but as a king with a crown. And when Jesus returns in the second advent, it will be what we know as the end of the world. The final judgment will commence. The resurrection of the living and the dead will stand before Jesus. And Jesus will pronounce his verdicts, and you'll begin a new heavens and a new earth. His first coming was as a baby. His second is as a king. And so in this Advent, we hold this tension of these two ideas, both that Jesus has come and that he surely will return. Just as people doubted that he would come the first time and so were surprised in his coming, so today people doubt or or think only crazy people talk about the end of the world. The billboards have become the loudest voice for this instead of the scriptures where it's taught in almost every New Testament book or alluded to. And so as we look at this, we want our faith to be strengthened by these two big theologies and strengthened with four gospel themes. Take a look with me. It's joy, hope, peace, and love. And it's really important to see between the two comings of our Lord Jesus, it's an already and a not yet. If you receive Jesus now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have joy in knowing God but your joy's not gonna be full in this broken world until Jesus comes back. It's already, but it's not yet full. The same with our hope. To know Jesus lives and reigns, you have hope growing, but one day your hope will be full as you're with the Lord forever. Same with peace, you can have peace in this place from God now, but it's peace among the storm and chaos of life. But one day, God will be just and rule all and peace will be the only thing. And the same with love. We have glimpses, we have glimmers, we have feelings of God's love for us now, but one day love will be the only story we tell. And so if you are a person who has some longings, then you have a place in Advent. If your longings have gone cold for the next world, for the rest of the eternity, I invite you to step in and to let them be warmed by God's scriptures to long and have passion for more joy, more hope, more peace, and more love in your life. 
As we look at the story, the shepherds knew two things about God and peace that make this whole scene just kind of loaded. And if you don't have these two things in your mind, you probably will miss what's going on in the text. See, these shepherds, even though they weren't highly educated, they were probably good Jewish boys who grew up going to synagogue enough to know these two things. First, the shepherds were deeply aware that all mankind lacks peace with God. They were painfully aware that God and man do not have peace with one another. The Old Testament is filled with sacrifices for our sins to God because our sin separates us from God. That we are not naturally at peace with God. In fact, we are naturally at war with God. That every sin of ours is not a mistake, but a rebellion against the man who made us and that we are made for. Our sin is an act of treason. Our sin is an act of rebellion. Our sin is joining and being in league with the devil himself. And each sacrifice, each talk of a sacrifice throughout the Old Testament is pointing to this reality that without the shedding of blood, without death, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so these shepherds, as they tended their sheep, were looking at the things to be slaughtered. The very lambs and sheep that they're tending, at least a good percentage of them are going to wind up being slaughtered at the temple. And they know animal blood can't forgive their sins, but they know obeying Jesus and obeying God's word and doing that and trusting God for forgiveness was real. They knew they lacked peace with God. And the second thing the shepherds knew about peace and directly related, that though they lacked peace with God, the peace of God was on the way. See, the scriptures also told them, and the Old Testament lays out these beautiful promises everywhere, but there's these specific passages that talk about peace as the salvation between God and man, that one day our problem of lacking peace would actually be solved by God, bringing the peace of God to us. Look at this from Isaiah. This is just chapter nine. This is a full 600 years before Jesus would walk the earth. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, the ruling of the entire world. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of greatness, of the greatness of his rule, his government, and peace, there will be no end. It's not talking about another great leader for Israel. It's talking about a final leader for all people will come. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He'll be from the line of David, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from a time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It is God's zeal and joy that he sends his son Jesus. And every longing you've ever had in your heart for moral rightness, whenever you felt, oh, that's wrong, that's so wrong, every longing for justice and rightness will be fulfilled. It's both from God and coming true in God, and specifically coming true in this baby Jesus. 
And if this sounds familiar, some of the things we've been referencing these weeks, it's because the book of Isaiah, some scholars call it the fifth gospel. Because even though it was written 600 years before Jesus, it describes so much of his life, so much of the theology around Jesus, that to not know it makes it hard to understand everything that's going on in the gospels themselves. Isaiah 11 describes this resetting of the world, this undoing of sin and recalibrating of the world like this. One day, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf with the lion, and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat the straw of the ox, and the infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. And they will neither harm or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what the shepherds knew, that God was sending a son, a child, both to solve sin in a personal way, but also remake the world away from sin, dealing with sin so much that the animals will act different in the new heavens and the new earth. The renewal of the garden in Eden will be here. And advanced. And these promises all start coming true on the starry night that they're describing, that we sing in these songs and just read. And the first advent just brings the beginning of these things, and the second advent, the fulfillment. But in the shepherds' minds, this is what's happening. So Mary has given birth to Jesus. Jesus is probably about 33 minutes old when this happens in the nearby countryside. Look at me at verse 8. It says in the same region where the shepherds out in the field were keeping watch over their flock by night. They had to go and be with these animals out, whether it was cold, whether it was hot, no matter what, out in the countryside where there are no flashlights and there are no lights and there are no homes and live outside. And we kind of can have a typically like a little bit romantic view of shepherds now. Like, we don't really know any shepherds, but hypothetically, they're like in New Zealand. It's very Lord of the Rings-ish. They have like rich cream organic robes that are flowing, but of course, they're like tanned and toned and the weather's great. That's not how it was then. Um, to be a shepherd in the ancient world in the first century um, was the lowest paying job. It was the least desirable job. It was the least respected job. It was the lowest job you could have before becoming a beggar. Nobody dreamed of being a shepherd. It was because you were out of options that you spent all this time away from your family, getting paid almost nothing to wander around in the hill country with a couple of bros, and people didn't trust you at all. They didn't educate you past a certain point. You probably couldn't read or write. You didn't get to do any of the normal stuff in a city and town. Bathing wasn't a thing, so there was an organic vibe about them, but not the good kind. There were some odors. And due to like scarcity of food, there was a temptation to maybe steal off people's farms or maybe graze your sheep, maybe where you shouldn't. And so there was this general vibe that no matter who they were around, they were always the outsider. They were people not to be trusted. They were people not to, not to really interact with, but to keep some distance. So much so that courts at that time wouldn't allow their testimony in court. If they witnessed a murder, didn't matter. Because who can trust a shepherd? 
was the kind of vibe about them. Yet the angel comes to them. The angel could have come to absolutely anyone. And Luke hammers this point, the author home, because in verse one of this chapter, he mentions it's during the reign of the emperor Caesar Augustus, the literal king of the Roman empire and might as well have been the king of the world at that time. He doesn't get the memo, but he comes to a bunch of cold, lonely shepherds and says this in verse nine. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were literally lit up by the glory of this angel, the glory of what was happening. And they were filled with great fear. That's over and over. When you see an angel in scripture, people freak out. We think everyone in the Bible seeing angels. That's just like the highlight reel of human history. Most people think, I know it's in the Bible, but it's like lore or something from long ago. And it's happening to them this night. In verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, behold, I bring you good news, literally the gospel of great joy that will be for all people. And he's both telling them and showing them. If I'm telling you this, it must be for everybody. For unto you is born this day in the city of David from the line of David, remember? A savior who is Christ. That means the anointed one, Christ, the, sa- the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. How do you know which baby it is? Well, you'll find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel comes and says a lot of things. He says a baby is here. He is the long-awaited savior. He's in nearby Bethlehem, known as the city of the great shepherd king himself, David, the greatest king of the Old Testament. And this baby is the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the savior, the one who will save people from their sins. And this baby is also Lord, as in Lord of the entire universe. And too often folks try to separate these two ideas. But Jesus is always, always both. Jesus is savior. He is the only forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is Lord, a God who must be obeyed. If you consider Jesus as Savior only, but not Lord, it's likely you still love your sin much more than Jesus. And you're probably miserable. Because the most miserable man or woman on the planet isn't the one who's lost, it's the one who knows some of Christ, but still chooses the lesser thing in sin. The other way, if you consider Jesus Lord only, he's Lord of the universe, but you don't really know him as Savior, you likely have not realized the depth of your sin issue, nor the greatness of God's grace, meaning you're likely exhausted trying to prove to this Lord you're good enough, and you're probably making everyone around you miserable in the process. Because the, I acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but not Savior crowd, gets quite judgy, because they have to be. They got to be better than everybody else. Jesus is Lord and Savior. And if you feel like you've tried Christianity before and it's never really worked for you, you don't really understand what your friend's excited about, what your family's excited about, what other people are excited about, I would just offer this in a serious way to you. Have you received Jesus as Savior and Lord, how Scripture presents him? 
Or have you maybe believed upon a Jesus of your imagination? Editing him as Savior, editing him as Lord, editing out the parts you like or don't like or agree with or disagree with. Because here's the truth. If Jesus is truly God and he is, then we can only receive Jesus on his terms. We don't get to set the terms and agreements of following God. He doesn't follow us around as a butler or therapist or anything else. We follow him around as the Lord of the universe and the only savior for our sins. And the angels tell them that this is bringing great joy. The reason for that great joy of the savior, the Christ, the Lord is verse 14 is that he will bring peace. And the angel says, the sign is this, this baby, if you need to find this right baby, he's going to be the one surrounded by animals, surrounded by smells in the city of David, kind of probably being born like you were, maybe like King David was in this humble, humble place, even though he's the only king who will ever last. But then something happens to these shepherds that didn't happen in the stories of Joseph. It didn't happen in the story of Mary or Zechariah or Elizabeth or anybody else. They all had dreams or visions or a visit from one angel. But look what verse 13 and 14 tells us. And suddenly there was an angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When it says multitude, multitude, we're talking like hundreds or thousands. So they didn't get visited by one, just one angel. It started with one, but now the sky has exploded with angels. It'd be something like this. This is the Burning Man Festival. Imagine a thousand of these scattered across the sky, illuminating everything. It would make Burning Man look puny and not worth going. Don't go anyways. But I'm telling you, it's the biggest bonfire I could find. And this is what's ripping across the sky. And they belt out all these verses. And suddenly the shepherds are convinced that the Savior could be in an animal pen. And they are ready to drop what they're doing. It's stop, drop, and roll to Bethlehem. It's time to obey the angels. And when they say glory to God in the highest, glory means the weight, the fame, the beauty, the power, the renown of God. This baby coming means glory to God will reach to the highest, highest heavens. But it also means this. It says, but on earth, Jesus coming means peace for mankind. Now, we have all sorts of definitions for peace. Peace can be like this. Finally, having enough money just to walk around and do this. Not the peace they're talking about. Peace could be this. Just getting your yoga on, getting your Peloton on, just getting your Zen mind space on. Peace could be something like this. Kind of the peace, not war, like the hippie vibes. If we just get rid of all the bombs, that would be peace. But the peace that God is actually talking about is something more like shalom. And shalom is the word used for peace throughout the Old Testament that means peace from God that affects your whole life, not dependent on your circumstances. It's a peace that isn't the absence of work, like walking on the beach. It isn't the absence of conflict even, but it's the presence and purpose of God in your life. It's the thing your heart at some level has always been after and maybe goes about it the wrong way. 
It's what people are looking for at the end of a pill bottle that's provided only from God. It's what we look for in relationships. It's what we look for in bigger paychecks. It's a peace that can only come from God, but we're always hungry for it until we find it. And see, this peace from God talks about his presence and purpose in your life. He wants to return us to a place like Adam and Eve before their sin, when they knew God intimately, could work with purpose with God, that life had deep meaning, and that God was with his people always. But ever since the garden, we've fallen into sin. We were born sinners, Scripture tells us, putting us at odds with God as rebels, actually at war with God and the world. And that's why you don't hear a ton of sermons on peace or about Christian peace doesn't always resonate with people because we don't like to consider or reckon with that all mankind, all humans are not just lost, but at war with God. Because suddenly it makes the final judgment very real if you think of yourself as not a, a helpless person, but instead someone in active war with God. If you don't believe you're at war, then why would you need peace? The truth is, because of our sin, because of global sin, from our first breath, we've been in active rebellion to God. We tend to edit every story in our life to make us the good guys. It's like we're writing a comic book over, always from our perspective, that we're the good guys, and we've been maligned, and this and that. When the truth is, in most stories, at least with God at the center, we're the bad guys, not the good guys. We're the guys who need the rescue. And to help us understand this reality, I want you to see Colossians 1 with me. Paul, as if writing about this very moment, writes this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus. Jesus, fully God and fully man. And through Jesus, to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The price of the peace with God is the very blood of God in Christ. Once you are alienated from God, that's what I'm talking about, you being at war, alienated, you were separate, you were foreign to God, you were away from God. That's what the shepherds knew, that we have a problem. That's why we have to keep killing these lambs all the time at the temple. We were separated, aliened from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And that's a thought that our culture just won't even tolerate. I'm not a, man, I'm spiritual. <laughs> I'm not an enemy of God. I like God okay. Him and, you know, all sorts of things. But the Bible would say we're an enemy. We're a stranger. We've been cut off. We're a people in need of a blood sacrifice and lambs aren't gonna do. But now, Jesus has reconciled you. Notice that relational language. It's not a transaction like the bank, but a relationship of a father coming from a son or a hug from a mother to a lost daughter. Has now reconciled you by Christ's physical body. That's why your body matters. That's why we're doing Advent. If Christ doesn't have a physical body, he can't die for you. If Christ doesn't have a physical body, he can't live a perfect life for you. If Christ doesn't have a physical body, he can't rise from the dead for you. If we don't have a physical body, we can't obey Jesus. By Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. 
If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out from the gospel, this is the gospel that you've heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The response to the gospel is to become a servant of God. Notice the shepherds obey immediately. Notice the angels are on a string because they see God for who he is. There's nothing else to live for. It is the thing to live for. And that Jesus, this baby in a manger, his physical body would grow up to be a man, to die on a cross, to forgive us and to bring us to God, to back into a relationship with God that actually works. The, pro- the peace between you and God is bought by Jesus on the cross, not because God is bad or God's an angry guy that needs fixing, but because we are enemies who need saving. It's a rescue mission. Not to get the bad guys over there, but to get the bad guy in here. So when the angels sing peace, they mean Jesus has come to bring an end to the war and to bring you home to God. See, Jesus is fulfilling all those promises of Scripture that one day God's Messiah will bring peace. See, Jesus brings peace by being the sacrifice. Jesus brings peace by being the sacrifice. The goal isn't to get you to the state of Zen. The goal isn't to remove every conflict in your life. Some conflicts are very good. The goal is for you to experience the peace of God from God, bought by the precious blood of Jesus. And we return as all these stories in Advent do, that Christmas is a story of a baby born to die, that God's greatest gift The reason we gift each other presents was his only son, Jesus. So what do the shepherds do? Let's look with me at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The proper way to receive this Jesus is to marvel, is to wonder, is to treasure because the war is over. They know it, and it's coming. They know he's the Savior. They know he's the Lord, and that's what matters. But here's the key from the angels before, that God's peace is as verse 14 says. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The peace isn't a universal peace. The peace of God, the peace from Jesus is a particular peace. It's a peace for those with whom Jesus is pleased. So kind of bubbles up a big question. How do you know if Jesus is pleased with you? The shepherds knew. Mary and Joseph know. The angels know. But do you know? How do I know if this Jesus is pleased with me? And I want to give you three truths for you really to know this answer and have deep confidence in it. My goal is for you to have deep confidence in this 
pieces for you. First, God is pleased with his son, Jesus. Luke 3.22 makes this really clear. It says, the Holy Spirit descended on him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven that said, you are my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. See, the answer to if God is pleased with you actually starts with Jesus. That God is absolutely pleased with Jesus, with his perfect life, with his perfect record, which makes Jesus eligible for the second big truth, that God can be pleased with you because of God's son, Jesus. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We'll leave this up here. We think about the cross usually only in one way, that on the cross, Jesus dies for our sins. And that is 100% true. But so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. When you believe your sins, your record of sins, the reason you're at war with God is erased. But at belief, something else happens too you become made into the righteousness of God. Some have called it the double exchange, the great exchange. You get God's pleased with Jesus on you. It's called the righteousness of God. Instead of trying to earn and compare yourself to others from now on, if you belong to Jesus, when he looks at you, he sees Jesus's perfect record. How do you know if the son is pleased with you? Well, do you have Jesus's righteousness or are you standing on your own record, which will never be enough? At the cross, two things happen. Sin is solved, but also righteousness is given for all who would believe. And we know this is true because Jesus rises from the dead. When he rises, it's like getting a payment approved for sin and that what Jesus said is true and that this man is to be believed. So is Jesus pleased with you? It starts with, well, God is pleased with Jesus. Two, God can be pleased with you because of belief in Jesus. And here's the third truth. The third truth is that God is not hiding this pathway from you, but rather Ephesians 2, 17 through 19 is true for you and it's true for me. It says, he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away, Peace to those who are near. There is no one who Jesus and his church are not preaching to. It doesn't matter uh, what your religious background was or growing up. It doesn't matter uh, from what country you're from. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter what kind of relationships you've been in. Everyone is being preached. If you are far away, those who are near, doesn't matter. This gospel of peace For through Jesus, we have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Jesus is not playing hide and go seek with you. Jesus is preaching the gospel of peace to you. If you can hear my voice, you've heard the gospel. And God wants you to respond in faith to him, to make peace by his son, I urge you, if you do not believe yet today, 
to take Jesus up on his offer of peace. How do you do this? Will you receive him as Savior, the Christ, the only forgiveness of sins? As Savior, Jesus brings forgiveness and makes peace between you and God, giving you his perfect record. You also receive Jesus as Lord, the Lord who rules over you with love and truth. As Lord, Jesus is God, and there's no way to accept Jesus as he is. You can only accept Jesus as he is, truly Lord, truly Savior. And the truth is, when you take Jesus as Savior, you get a new heart and you want to obey him as Lord. His lordship doesn't seem heavy or cruel, but instead, the only way to truly live. If you lack God's peace, I urge you to look to Jesus as the one who can give you peace, the Prince of Peace himself. In that way, truly become a Christian. You can talk to me, you can talk who you came with, you can talk to anybody, and they can have you ready to receive this Lord and Savior himself. But if you do believe, if you're a member of Citizens and you do believe, I have one obvious uh, application for you and one not so obvious. The first obvious one is God's people praise God. God's people who've received his peace, that the peace of God leads to the praising of God. The shepherds are praising God. The angels are praising God. Joseph's praising God. Zachariah's praising God. The baby in the womb of John the Baptist, what's he doing? Praising God. Every week we've been talking about people as they meet Jesus, they immediately start praising God. There's no delay. There's no like hype up ramp they need to get on. When you genuinely are meeting Jesus, receiving his peace, you start praising God. Your goal in worship is to wildly worship God with your heart, to join the church international in what is the norm of Christian worship is hot and loud worship. And so I want to ask you two things. One, if you say, hey, my worship's pretty tame on the scale, not so wild, would you interrogate it that yourself this year? Would you ask yourself why that is? And find a gentle Lord in Jesus who wants you to grow in your worship. And two, would you ask someone who you, you see and is pretty passionate about worship of Jesus and just ask them, how, how did they grow into that? To not feel guilty about our lack of, of wild and high worship, but rather to have a mindset of, I want to grow. And that that's worth growing in. That we want to follow the people in the Bible and not do the opposite not claim that the peace of God and not worship and praise him like he is God. And the second, the less obvious is application is Luke, the writer of the gospel, Luke, in the book of Acts. Luke does something on purpose. You can look up the word peace in the book of Acts and it's used all over the place. But he's intentionally showing us something like here in Acts 9.31. That the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. That the people who have God's peace preach the gospel. That over, it's a theme that God's people have peace, that peace is attractive to others, and as they spell it out for people, that the word of God multiplies, the peace of God multiplies. And so as we see headlines in the news and we walk around in a weak and weary world, you have something to offer people. And it's the peace of God, not a meditation uh, um, method, not, not, not some new thing that, that you found or, or a gizmo, but rather you have the peace of God. 
and that people actually want that in their life. They're actually looking for it. And that God wants that peace to multiply, not just from the Christian all-stars, whoever they are in your mind, but through you, through all of us. That the peace of God is not a secret, but something we can give away with joy. Church, if we settle for worldly peace, we'll always be left searching and restless. But if we receive Jesus' peace, we have a reason to praise the Lord. And we also have a gift to give to a weak and weary world. Peace has come through Jesus, and it's carried on by us. Enjoy God's peace as the very presence of Jesus. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 